27. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. You know, there are a lot of reasons that people give for skepticism. Sometimes it's just an instance where a person is distracted and they're looking in another direction and they don't see the value of what's right before them. They choose to focus on something else. Kind of reminds me of the story of a night when a young mother and father were in their home and the father was passing or the wife was passing by the the nursery where the infant was in the crib and the husband was standing over the crib and there was just a tender look on his face. He looked so joyful. He looked kind of in a state of wonder and skepticism, a state where there was tremendous appreciation and amazement. And she was so touched by the look on her husband's face that she walked in and slipped beside him and put her arm around him and laid her head on his shoulder and just kind of gazed up at him and said, Honey, penny for your thoughts. And he looked down and thought a little bit and he said, Man, I still can't believe it. They can make a crib like this for $49.50. (laughs) Kind of a loss in perspective about what's really important. And sometimes that's the case when it comes to skepticism. We're not thinking about what's truly important, what's right in front of us, what's truly of value. But there's another reason for skepticism, and sometimes it's the will. There's another story of a national speaker who was on an airplane, and he sat next to a person, and as so often takes place, a conversation ensues. And the one man said to the national Christian speaker, I'm a skeptic. The national Christian speaker said, well, have you ever read the Bible? He said, no, no, I, I really haven't because I am a skeptic. And the national speaker said, well, then you're not a skeptic. You're a person who just refuses to research and put in the time to ponder the truth. And when we find the story in front of us today, there's even a third kind of skeptic. And those are the ones who say, I refuse to believe because that would mean a change in my life. I don't want to believe because that means it's going to cost me. So I'm going to stay as far away from what I perceive to be the truth as I can because I'm unwilling to accept it because of the change that it will mean. There are many skeptics in that camp today. What we want to see this morning are some answers that Jesus gives to some of these skeptics that shows the inconsistency that people can have as they approach belief in the Lord. And that's what I want us to think about today. First of all, skeptics often accuse followers of Christ, those who believe in God, of hypocrisy. But what we find when we look at the beliefs of many of the skeptics is there's a deeper hypocrisy and what they maintain, and that's what we're going to see this morning. You see, when a person wants to retain the type of life that they're living without making change, they will often discredit rather than discover the truth. Their goal is to try and cast aspersions on what they're asked to believe because of the change that they know that it will require. And as a result, they reject the very truth that's right in front of them. 
And what they do is, rather than listening to the truth, they hope to trap people by their own words. And that's what happens today as we see this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, notice the 13th verse, and it says this. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, that 13th verse gives us a great deal of insight. First of all, the Pharisees and Herodians loathed one another. There was a deep-seated generational hatred that existed between the Pharisees and Herodians. They were coming at totally different ends of the perspective. For them to ally against the Lord Jesus Christ meant that they had to put aside their hatred toward one another because their hatred for Christ was more intense. The enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. And so they bind together and they decide that they're going to entrap the Lord Jesus Christ to catch him in what he says. Now, the word that's translated catch in our English Bibles is from a Greek word. And what it means is this, to entrap or ensnare an animal. As a matter of fact, it was often used of taking a net and putting fish in the net catching them with the net. So the idea is they are setting a trap for the Lord Jesus Christ, not wanting to learn the truth about what Jesus would say, but seeking to catch him and somehow discredit him before others. And then look at the 14th verse. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. What are they doing? They are buttering up, thinking that by flattery, they will somehow catch Jesus off guard. And you know, people often use flattery to try and gain an advantage. It's a manipulative ploy, isn't it? Proverbs says this, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. This is their intent. They are spreading a trap for Jesus, they think, that will catch him in his words and somehow discredit him before others. And look at what they say about Jesus. It's interesting that the things that they say are actually true. They say, we know you are a man of integrity. Certainly, Jesus is a man of integrity. They go on to say that you are not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus is no respecter of persons. A true statement about Christ. And then amazingly, look at what else they say. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, if all of these things were true about Jesus, why were they trying to trap him? Why did they reject him? Why did they refuse to embrace what Jesus was teaching? They were using flattery, and they were being hypocrites because they were saying one thing but behaving in a different way. And that's something that Mark brings out crystal clear in this passage. But then the text goes on to discuss with us a question that they would pose to Christ so that they could entrap Him in what He said. So, notice the question right at the end of the passage we were just reading. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, when they posed this question to Christ, they were setting a trap because either answer, yes or no, would mean that Jesus would alienate somebody. For instance, for those who were allied with Caesar, they would be asking, well, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, if he says yes, then, then, then that's good for us. But there's going to be a group that would be totally alienated because paying taxes to Caesar and Jesus giving his stamp of approval, you know what that would mean? That would mean he's siding with the Romans. We hate the Romans. So when Jesus sides with the Romans, because we hate the Romans, we will hate him. So that was part of the trap. Let's try and catch him in it. Let's try and get him to divide his followers, have some of his followers peeled off, divided out, and then he'll be easier to conquer. And then there's the other side. What if Jesus said, no, you're not supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? The people who were in favor of going along to get along with Rome would be upset. But in addition to that, many people believed that Jesus was the political deliverer. So for Jesus to say, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, they would be saying, no, you can't say that. Don't say that. If he says no, you have the Roman guards everywhere. And if he says no, they're arrested. So Jesus is put into this impossible place by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And don't you sort of think that before this took place, they were probably off on the side somewhere discussing strategy. What's a conundrum that we can give to the Lord and bring him to a place to where he's going to alienate people? You know, there are many who seek to divide the followers of Christ. In the passage that we're looking to this morning, it was the Herodians and the Pharisees. But today there are many who seek to divide the body of Christ as well. That's been a strategy of those who oppose the message of Christ for centuries. They love to divide his followers. And we can divide over so many inconsequential things. In this case, it was a division over politics. And that can be something that can divide the body of Christ. There can be those who say, I'm one particular party, those who say, I'm another particular party, and I won't have anything to do with people or the other party, and as a result, I hate them, I discount them, I discredit them. As believers, there are more important things for us to focus on than political viewpoints. There are more important things for us to focus on than many of the things that divide us. God wants a unified body of believers. He wants his followers unified. And it's to the enemy's advantage when we divide. In a previous church, there were two men in my church who were at odds. One of them refused to walk through the doors of the church ever again. I found out when I went to visit him because I was a young pastor and didn't know any better, I asked him, what is the problem between you and brother so-and-so? And you know what it was? Several years back, the one brother said the other brother couldn't be a Christian and be a member of a particular political party. And when the one who had 
been a member of that party generationally through his family, heard that, he became offended and decided that he would never join in again in fellowship. Now, that was an irresponsible, immature decision on his part, but it was an irresponsible, immature comment that brought him to that place. We have more important things than some of these things to discuss. And Jesus was looking at the intent of these people to divide, and Jesus came up with a masterful answer. After they posed this question, notice in the 15th verse, after they say, should we pay or shouldn't we, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. You see, having the right view requires knowing God. And these people did not know God. Notice what Jesus says immediately. Why are you trying to trap me? Jesus called them for their strategy right away. But then Jesus goes on to say this, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So here is Jesus answering their question with a question. Isn't it amazing how many times Jesus answers questions with questions. And he want, what he wanted them to focus on was the thought behind their process. You see, what I find interesting is this. When Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it, Jesus was addressing a particular tax that the Romans had levied on the followers of Israel, the Jews, in about A.D. 6. What they required was one denarius a year from each of the Jews that was connected to a census that was taken. And so the Jews became very angry with this tax. They were saying, Rome is imposing its will on us by charging us one denarius a year. By the way, a denarius was about a day's wage for a laborer in the field. How many of you would like to just pay a day's wage in taxes annually? Yeah, I'd sign up for that. It wasn't the amount, it was the principle that upset them. They did not like the idea that Rome was pressing them under their thumb, and it had to be paid in a denarius. In other words, they had to exchange their coinage for Roman coinage. Now, here's what we find intriguing about what Jesus does. All of the Pharisees were always complaining about Roman rule. They were always complaining about being under their thumb and paying their taxes and all of these things. But guess what? When Jesus asked one of them to produce a denarius, they easily came up with one. You know what that means? They were happy to use the Roman money. They were happy to use the Roman bureaucracy, the Roman roads, the Roman laws. They used it where they saw fit, but they rejected the idea of it. That was complete hypocrisy. If they were true to their beliefs, they would have isolated themselves from the Roman currency and not carried it and traded with the Romans and all of the things that they were doing. So in a sense, Jesus is, first of all, exposing their hypocrisy. But you know, there's something deeper in it. 
When Jesus asked them to bring him the coin, he asked this, whose portrait is on it? Now, there was supposed to be, there we go, there's a picture of a denarius for you right there. On one side, it says Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. So many of the Jews saw this as idolatry because they were calling Augustus God. On the other side, it said high priest. And it has a picture of a woman holding a javelin and a a, a branch of olives uh, for peace. So it has the idea of Roman peace and that that is the high priest of of Tiberius. So when Jesus brings this coin out and asks them to show whose image is on it, what he's saying is this. Because this has the image of Caesar, you, in turn, are responsible to return to Caesar the things that are part of his system because his image is on it. But then Jesus goes on to say something else. Notice as the text continues in verse 17, after they answer that it's Caesar's image that's on it, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, give back to Caesar the things that are a part of his system. When he requires a tax and you use his roads, you use his soldiers, you use the things that are a part of his kingdom on a daily basis, it's only right that you pay him for what you use. That's the idea. But then he adds this, and to God, what is God's? Now let me ask you this for a moment. Whose image do we have? God's image. When we were created, Genesis says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What the text is saying to us is this. We bear the image of God. So, yes, I give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the things of this temporal world that I use that are his. I reimburse him for those things. However, I have a responsibility to God because I bear his image to render to God the things that are God's. And what are the things that are God's? Everything. Even the things that I render to Caesar are ultimately God's. Everything is God's. So this is really a tremendous statement of commitment. We pay our taxes because one is an authority over us. But we render to God the things that are God's because He is in authority over everyone and everything. If we really understand this, what we're saying is, I will submit to the Creator in whose image I am created, whose image I bear. God wants us to see the importance of rendering to God the things that are God's. You know, for many of us, we think in terms of the temporal so much we forget about the eternal. We will pay our taxes because of fear of the government, because of fear of being incarcerated or having things levied against us. And yet, when it comes to God, because there isn't the idea of immediate consequences in our mind, we won't render to Him the things that He deserves. The prophet Micah said this, You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. 
when you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Now, what was going on in the temple during the time of Micah? People were saying, you know, we'll give our sacrifices to God in the temple to worship Him. But, you know, I've got this crippled lamb over here that's really got no marketable value. So rather than just killing it or selling it at a horrible discount, I'll just give it to God. It's going to die anyway. So when I give it to God, I'll placate God, and I'll take care of myself as well. However, look at what God says through the prophet Malachi. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? The things that we will give to God wouldn't be accepted by a human authority. Why would we expect that they would be accepted by God Almighty? And by the way, in this, I'm not just talking about lambs. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about our viewpoint of time. You know, I'll give God the leftover time that I have. I'll give God the leftover energy that I have. I'll give God the leftover, plug in your favorite value. We need to render to God the things that are God's. And often that statement is lost in all of our concern about the political aspects of giving to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's secondary. The primary point that Jesus makes in this passage is render to God the things that are God's. That's our first responsibility. That's what God wants us to do. That's how God wants us to set up our value system. Not in terms of thinking about what are my consequences right here, right now, but more thinking what pleases God, what honors Him. As one created in His image, how do I reflect that image? God wants us to think about these things. But then the text goes on. And we see another encounter mentioned at verse 18. And when we come to this, we find the Sadducees. And we find in this that hard-hearted people try to adapt God's Word to fit their ideas. They come in with a preconceived notion. You know, I saw a cartoon years ago in Leadership Magazine, a Christian magazine that, honestly, I just looked at for the cartoons because they had such creative cartoons. But at any rate, it shows a picture of this little boy on his elbows with a Bible in front of him and his sister with pigtails and braces standing over him. And he says, don't bother me. I'm trying to find another passage to support my preconceived ideas. You know, that's the way people approach the Scripture a lot of times. We have an idea. Now, where can I find Scripture to support it? This is what the Sadducees were doing. They had the preconceived notion that there's not the miraculous There's no such thing as the resurrection. As a matter of fact, they didn't even believe in angels, we're told, in the book of Acts. Acts says this, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So here is this group of people who don't believe in the resurrection, and they're trying to make their point that the resurrection doesn't work by introducing a hypothetical situation. Have you ever found that when you've talked to a skeptic? That very often they love to construct intricate, hypothetical situations to try and ridicule something that you believe. 
It's a tactic of debate, and that's what they're doing here with the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at this story that they construct. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now what are they doing? They're constructing a complicated situation. They are trying to ridicule the doctrine of resurrection by making certain assumptions. Primary assumption, after we die and go to be with God, everything will be there as it is here. In other words, they extrapolate. They take something that is a part of their life here and now, and they make it something that is applicable to the hereafter. And that's the problem. You cannot take human situations of here and now and say that that applies to all things spiritual because the spiritual supersedes what is here and what is now. God is greater than what we can reason. God is greater than what we can see. God is greater than what we have in our own human experience. Think about this for a moment. When you get some age on you, you discover that you've learned some things that you wish you had known when you were younger. There's no more benefit for wisdom than years and age. Now, our culture discredits that. We say the older a person gets, the more out of touch they get. But when you look in Scripture, the idea is life experience means a lot. I remember when I was teaching my boys how to drive a car, and one of them, I won't say which, so I won't embarrass them, but one of them decided that they had all of the information they needed to drive a car as I was teaching them because, hey, I went to driver's ed. I now know everything that's needed to drive a car. So we're driving a car, and I'm warning them about things and telling them things, probably a little excitedly as a dad in a newer car with a new driver. And, you know, dad... I already know how to drive, you know. And I just had him pull over and I said, son, how long have you been driving? I've been driving for like 16 weeks. And I looked at him and said, well, you know, I've been driving for like 20 years. So I think I have a little more experience. Listen to what I have to say. That experience means a lot. So think of this. Here we are as human beings saying, this is the way it ought to be. This is what everything ought to do. This is how it ought to fit together. And we're saying to God, who has eternal life experience, we're trying to explain to him how things ought to be, how things are. How ridiculous is that? We have such a limited understanding, such a limited scope, such a limited view. God has an unlimited view. For us to, to presume that we can tell God how things are is ridiculous, and that's exactly what the Sadducees are doing here. They're setting this construction up based on an Old Testament passage of Scripture. If 
brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So this is what they're basing this on and this is how they're trying to trap Jesus with this intricate story. Now, as we look at this, the intention of the Pharisees is terrible. Let's trap him. Let's discredit him. Let's make him look ridiculous because there's no answer for the problem that we've created. Personally, I'm glad they asked the question because we get some more insight into heaven when Jesus answers. But then Jesus does give his answer. Look at verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? What Jesus was saying to these men, and here they are, these experts, these scholars, is first of all, you don't know the Scripture. You don't know what you're talking about. Very often with skeptics, they don't know what they're talking about, but they say what they believe with real authority. It makes them sound credible and believable, but in reality, they're not. And so Jesus is calling the Sadducees on this, and look at what he says. First of all, he corrects them on their assumption about heaven. Their assumption about heaven? Everything is going to be the same in heaven as it is here on earth. What Jesus says is this, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, when Jesus says this, I've found a few people who are scared by this statement. Usually they're newlyweds. You mean, Johnny's not going to be my husband when we get to heaven? Now, some people say, you mean Johnny's not going to be my husband when we get to heaven? (laughs) But here's Jesus' point. The relationships that we have here on earth will be different in heaven. And that's nothing to be afraid of. In marriage, you develop a bond of intimacy and closeness. And it's a wonderful picture, a picture even of how Christ and the church relate, we're told in Scripture. What we need to understand is this. What we know as the familiar here will be different there, but it's for the better. There's a wonderful book about heaven. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's called Heaven. It's by Randy Alcorn. And I would like to just read a quote from this book. Listen to what he says about this issue. There's a great deal of regret and misunderstanding about this passage The Bible does not teach there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, it makes clear there will be marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride and will be part of it. Paul links human marriage to the higher reality it mirrors. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. Now listen to this. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost pointing to our relationship with Christ as our bridegroom. Once we reach the destination, the signpost becomes unnecessary. 
that one marriage, our marriage to Christ, will be so completely satisfying that even the most wonderful earthly marriage wouldn't be as fulfilling. Earthly marriage is a shadow, a copy, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. Once that ultimate marriage begins at the Lamb's wedding feast, all the human marriages that pointed to it will have served their noble purpose and be assimilated into the one great marriage they foreshadowed. The purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. Great thought. There will be no disappointment in heaven. We don't construct what heaven is like. God does. And thank God we don't construct what heaven is like. Have you ever heard some of the cockeyed ideas about what heaven is like that people describe, not because they found revelation in Scripture, but because they look and they say, this is what I think heaven should be like. You know, in a previous church, there was a brother who hated contemporary Christian music. Every time he saw a drum, he was thinking in terms of, I hate this. I don't want this. I don't want this to be a part of of worship. One day he was ranting and railing about contemporary Christian music, and I said, Art, what are you going to do when you get to heaven and you find that there are drums in heaven? You know what his answer was? I see drums. I'll probably be in the other place. (laughs) really loathed them. People also write books about the purported things that they experience when they supposedly die and go into heaven. Listen, this is God's revelation about heaven, not the musings of somebody who makes a claim about whether or not they've died and gone into heaven. This needs to be our authority. Be careful of those books. There's scads of them out there, and some of them give some really unscriptural statements about what heaven is like based on just what people see and experience. This is our authority for that truth. Jesus is telling us here in this passage that there's going to be a big difference for us in heaven. There's going to be a change that takes place, and we need to understand that that change is for the better. But then he addresses something else about this. The Pharisees or Sadducees had said that we would have the same sort of relationships that we have here on earth, that marriage would transfer into heaven. Jesus lays that aside. But then look at verse 26. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Here's Jesus' second point. They were saying there's no resurrection. That was the whole point of them bringing this question to Jesus to try and lampoon it and ridicule it. You know what Jesus is saying to them? Jesus is saying to them that even in your first five books of the Bible, God makes it clear that people don't die and go into oblivion. You see, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They rejected everything else because they said there wasn't an explicit mention of resurrection, life after death. There is no life after death. But here's the problem. 
Jesus is pointing out there is a statement that we live after we die, and it's in the very core of the Old Testament. When God spoke, God identified himself in the deliverance of the law to Moses, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice he didn't say was. He said is. And that's an important consideration. If God had said was, the argument would have been over. But because God said is, he said, I am the God of people who are existing today, who live in this moment. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who physically had died, but spiritually continued to live. You see, they had misappropriated, misapplied Scripture. And they did it to suit their preconceived notions. Skepticism is something that causes us to reject the truth, build our own reasoning, and then base our belief system on not what God has revealed, but on what we have reasoned and surmised to be true. And what we need to understand is this. We need to be careful that we don't fall into those same traps of the skeptics. We need to make Scripture our authority. When Jesus answered the Sadducees, how did he answer them? With Scripture. We need to do the same. This needs to be the source for truth that we learn, that we follow, that we subscribe to. And we also need to be careful of this. Don't allow your own preconceived notions, your own ideas, your own musings to guide you in a direction that leads you away from God's truth. God is the God of revelation, and we learn about him through what he has revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. 